0: We had kind of a gap week between the two series so I wanted to turn to one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. So if you have a Bible I'd encourage you go ahead and open it to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you. Uh, it's the black one next to the, the red books there. And if you need help finding First Kings, it's in the first third or so of your Bible. And you may need to use the table of contents or ask a neighbor and figure out where that is. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home with you. Uh, you're welcome to, to use that. But as we look through this summer, we, we spent a lot of time looking at life living as exiles, right? That, that because we're a part of the kingdom of God, if you've followed Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you're in his kingdom. And so now we're kind of on the outside of life looking at what God's telling us to do. Last week, as we were wrapping up that, we talked about the issue of casting all of our cares or all of our anxieties on him. Do You remember us talking about that? As we talked about that, we, we said that, as we suffer for Christ and standing up for him and how to honor him, that sometimes that's gonna come with it cares and concerns and anxieties. We talked about the fact that there may be some biological things that predispose you to anxiety, but there is also a part in which we need to be recognized that we have a responsibility to respond in certain ways when it comes to our experience with anxiety. What we're gonna do this morning is actually look at the flip side of that same emotional coin where we looked at anxiety last week. We're gonna look at depression. This week. Now, the Bible doesn't ever use the word depression or, as the old timers called it, melancholy. Uh, some of you guys may have had a clinical diagnosis of depression. Some of you may battle with seasonal affective disorder or just get blue when it rains. Uh, rainy days and Mondays always get you down. Um, whatever your experience is, whether that's with uh, clinical depression or if that's subclinical and just kind of the everyday blues, we all have days when we hit that dark spot. And it's difficult for us to keep going. Now, as we look at this, uh, biblical counselor Brad Hambrick explains kind of how these two are two sides of the same coin. Because what happens is when we face a threat or a challenge, there's an artificial energy boost that comes into play. Right? You've heard of that fight or flight response. Your your body does certain things when you're faced with a challenge. And so when you face that challenge, you get this artificial energy boost. And when that kicks in, that leads you to a. a reaction that's often characterized by anxiety, right? We experience that as anxiety. But here's the problem. Our body can't sustain that level of energy forever. And so what happens is we go through a season where we're in this high-energy state of anxiety, and then we can't keep it up. So we crash, and we end up in depression. And depression is that point where we're clinically it's where you're so low emotionally and physically that you're not able to do things that are required for your basic everyday life again you may not battle with it on a clinical level but you have those days where you know you've been running full open and then all of a sudden it just crashes in on top of you well then what happens is maybe you go through a season you, you get a good rest or or you start kind of feeling better about things then you start looking at all of the things that didn't get accomplished while you were in that down season which then starts leading you into a fight-or-flight mode for anxiety, which then leads you back into depression. And for some folks, it feels like this endless cycle that they can't get off. Now, I want to be real clear here. I am not a licensed professional counselor. I am not a psychologist. I am not a psychopharmacologist, okay? I'm not a psychiatrist in any shape, way, shape, or form. However, I am a pastor, and I see what God's Word says. Now, here's one of the things that I want to be real clear at the very outset of this to remind you. It is God-honoring to use tools like counseling and medical intervention when necessary, okay? There's been a stigma in the church that we should just be able to kind of pray through this and and that we should never have to go to a doctor for any kind of medicine or I I should be able to pull myself up by this. I mean, the Holy Spirit lives in me. I I shouldn't have a battle with depression ever again. It can be God-honoring to go get additional help through counseling or through medication because there may be additional factors beyond what's going on. There may be physical factors that are contributing to your experience with depression and anxiety, okay? I want to be real clear with that. However, we are also spiritual beings that are in these physical bodies. There's a spiritual aspect of our our encounter with depression that we need to address and need to look at. And here's what I want you to see. The person that we're going to watch this morning as he battles with what we would probably diagnose as clinical depression... Is one of the most godly men in all of Scripture. One of the men God worked most powerfully through in the Old Testament. Battled depression to the point where he was basically suicidal. So, what do you do when the dark days come? We're gonna find Elijah battling depression today. As we see Elijah's battle with the dark days, here's what I wanna challenge you. On the dark days, Focus on finding God's presence more than his power. Now, that's going to make sense as we go through this a little bit more. To give you some context, you would have to look back at 1 Kings chapter 18. And actually, you've got to go a little bit further back. Elijah is a prophet who is serving during a time when the nation has completely turned their back on God. They don't want anything to do with the one true God. They've started following this false God called Baal or Baal. That's being led by the wicked queen Jezebel. She's the one who's really pushing the idea of Baal worship throughout Israel. And now it's finally coming to a head. God has withheld rain for three years from the land as punishment for their idolatry. And so instead of getting their attention, that's now met to this time where now Elijah has challenged the prophets of Baal to a showdown. And it's actually one of the coolest stories in the Old Testament. I mean, there there are so many levels to this. I think I really would have liked Elijah uh, because he gets sarcastic at points. I don't know. When you get to points of the story, I have this picture of him, like, leaning up against a tree with his hat down, kind of yelling stuff at the guys, making fun of him. But what happens is they they come up with a challenge. We're going to set up two different altars, two different sacrifices. Prophets of Baal, you guys pray and see if Baal responds by sending fire and lighting the altar. I'm going to sit over here for a while. When it's my turn, I'll pray. And whichever God responds by fire, that's the one true God. Okay? Sounds fair enough. So the prophets of Baal start doing what they're going to do, and they go through their whole uh, rigmarole. They even start cutting themselves, trying to get Baal's attention with the smell of blood. Elijah starts making fun of them and saying, hey, well, maybe he stepped aside for a minute, which is a euphemism for going to the bathroom, okay? He said, maybe your God's gone off for a minute, uh, and so just give him some time to come back. That's, I'm telling you, he's super snarky in this whole thing. They go for hours like this, and Baal, of course, never responds. It comes time for Elijah to offer the sacrifice. He's got the altar set up there with stones and with wood and the altar, the offering set up on top of it, and then he has them do the unthinkable and pour gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of water. Now, this was unthinkable for a lot of reasons. Remember, they've been in a drought for three years. Water is a precious commodity. You don't waste it like that. Second, you can't light wet wood, right? It just doesn't happen. Now, some of you are like, well, yeah, actually, if I, okay, go for it, mountain man. Um, But the reality is you can't get wet wood to light, not without a whole lot of work. So Elijah prays and says, basically, God, show yourself strong, and God does. God responds with a fire that is so hot, not only does it burn the soaking wet offering and the soaking wet wood of the offering, it even burns up the stones that the altar was made out of. The people of Israel immediately fall on their faces and say, the Lord, he is God. They kill 450 prophets of Baal, put these false prophets to death. This is the pinnacle of Elijah's life. Like, can you imagine as a pastor getting to do that? Like just seeing God do that and be like, I mean, you know. Then after that, Elijah sits down. It's interesting because it says that he puts his head between his knees. Dude is spent. He, you know, he, he's sitting down, he's just, and he keeps sending his servant to go look out over the water. Eventually, you start seeing a little cloud form. The cloud gets bigger and bigger and God breaks the three-year drought as the people have turned back to him. Now, as a pastor, as a preacher, to lead a nation in revival, to see God demonstrate his power in unbelievable ways, that's as good as it gets. Now, we're picking up immediately after that study. After that, after that account, after he does this, pick up in 1 Kings 19.1. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel, this wicked queen, sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, pause for just a second. What should Elijah's response be? He literally just saw God send fire from heaven in an impossible way, and what would his response be? You can't touch me. We just killed 450 of your prophets. You guys prayed to Baal all day long, and not a single thing happened. Why do you think that the gods are going to do anything to me? Verse 3, then Elijah became afraid, and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left a servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. On the heels of one of the most powerful movements of God in the Old Testament, Elijah runs. And he sits down and says, God, I just want to die. I'm done. Have you been there? Maybe it wasn't after something amazing. Maybe it was after a difficult situation. But regardless, at some level, all of us will face those kind of days. The wicked queen is mad that Elijah ordered the death of her prophets. She's furious with him. This is like Alice in Wonderland, queen of hearts, kind of furious, off with his head, right? Right? We talked about that fight or flight reaction. Well, which one did Elijah choose? Flight. Dude took off running into the wilderness. And exhausted, he throws in the towel. In spite of having seen God demonstrate his power in an historic, incredibly amazing way, he's just done. He swung into that emotional crash that leads to the dark days. And that's exactly where God met him. That's exactly where God meets him. In that moment, Elijah discovered that he needed God's presence more than he needed God's power. Now, by the way, I understand that we're splitting some hairs there theologically. God's power always accompanies his presence. God's omnipresent, so he's everywhere. But practically, I think you know what I'm talking about. You see, when you and I have an expression with de- or a- an encounter with depression or anxiety, what we want is God to fix it. God, this relationship is is crushing my soul. I need you to fix this person. I need you to fix me. I I, I don't know. Just, Just make it go away. I want your power to fall like lightning and just whoosh, make it go away. But what we see from Elijah's experience is what we need first is God's presence, not his power. Because God's presence brings with it three incredible gifts that we see in this passage. Instead of seeking God's power, let's figure out what it looks like to seek his presence. Well, the first gift he gives us is, number one, comfort. Look at what happens next. Read verses five through eight. He lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. I absolutely love how this unfolds. Depressed and exhausted, Elijah falls asleep under a tree. When he wakes up, he finds something pretty incredible. An angel has fixed him a hot meal. There's a loaf of bread, There's some cool water just sitting there by his head. Now, here's what's interesting. First, he says, an angel. But then, what's it say that second time in verse 7? Then, the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. What's significant about that phrase, the angel of the Lord? It's the pre-incarnate Christ. In the Old Testament, when you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus taking on a kind of a physical form before he was incarnated, before he was born there, what we celebrate at Christmas. Before Jesus took on flesh, he would take on this form and show up as the angel of the Lord. Catch this. In Elijah's depression, the first thing that Jesus does is show up. He just shows up, and he gives him something to eat and lets him take a nap. Do you see that? Now, this is Jesus. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is God the Son. He he is God fully. But there's not a single word of rebuke here. There's not a single word of chastening. There's not a single word of, Elijah, why are you doing this? Now, that'll come. But the first thing that God's presence brings is simply comfort. Now, guys, don't miss the real obvious application here. If you're battling depression, sometimes you just need a day off. Sometimes you need a break. Sometimes you need a nap and something to eat. That's a a spiritual thing. You're in a body that God knows is made of dust. He knows your limitations. That's why the Sabbath is a thing. Because he knows that you can't go all the time. So sometimes when you're facing depression or anxiety, you need to just stop. You need to take a day off. You need to take a nap. Eat something good. I know, you're keto, but come on. Piece of cake's not going to kill you, all right? Now, I know that sugar crashes exacerbate anxiety. Okay, you know what I'm saying. Isn't it beautiful? That when God's prophet, a man, by the way, that James says is a guy just like us, when he's depressed, the first thing Jesus does is show up with something to eat. You see, there's comfort in the presence of God. He didn't rebuke Elijah at first or confront his wrong beliefs. He just shows great mercy by comforting him. Now, by the way, that getting something to eat I know this is a bit of extrapolating it out of the text, I'll be honest. But you see that Jesus took care of Elijah's physical needs, right? Elijah needed physical rest. Elijah needed food. And this is one of the ways I think that God makes it clear that if our bodies need something physically, if if our hormones are out of balance, if there's something going on, God's given us medicine that can help our bodies get what it needs so that we can deal with the rest of it the first thing that he does is bring comfort. Elijah was exhausted, and before God could do the work that his soul needed, he needed to rest. Now, once he had rested, God began working deeper as he wandered around for the 40 days and 40 nights. But notice that at first there's no command. There's just a simple, gracious provision for a weary body and soul. By the way, isn't that what Jesus promises to those who come to him? Some of the most incredible verses in the Bible where Jesus says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. He says, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, coming to Jesus doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be solved but it does mean that there's where we find rest for our souls, the God who meets us, the God who fed Elijah, the God who comforts. Paul would later write about the same God and saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul's right there. Look, that's, that's how he's defining God. He's actually saying God is so merciful that we can define God as the Father of mercies and the God of all true comfort. He goes on to say, he comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows before he fixes anything about Jezebel, before he addresses Elijah's heart attitude that was wrong, he begins by comforting him. Maybe that's where you need to start this morning. As you've been going through an episode of Dark Days, you just need to say, God, I just need you. You need to just get quiet and sit there in his presence recognizing and acknowledging that he's there with you, spending time in his word, seeing who this God is. Just say, God, I need your presence. Heard about a guy one time who was having a difficult time understanding how he communes with God through prayer. So what he would do is he would sit down at his kitchen table and he'd set out two glasses of ice and he'd open up a bottle of Coke and he'd pour a Coke for him and Jesus. Now, Jesus is not going to drink that Coke But at the same time, there's that physical realization that I'm actually in the presence of God. And he's the God of all comfort. He's not just the God who sits in heaven, who's ready to zap people when they get out of line and throw down a lightning bolt because you're depressed today. Why don't you get over that? Why are you so anxious? He's the God who says, hey, how was the nap. Here's a loaf of bread for you. And you need to eat this because the journey's too too long and it's too hard. So why don't you just rest? So today, begin in those dark days by recognizing his comfort. The second gift that God's presence brings is correction. Correction. Now, this doesn't always feel like a gift at first. Pick up again in verse 9. Elijah entered a cave there and spent the night. Now, by the way, Mount Horeb is also another word for Mount Sinai. This is the mountain where God gave the law. So this is a place where God's presence has been. By the way, he wanders for like 40 days. Uh, A fit Israelite like Elijah should have been able to make that trip in about two weeks. So he is wandering aimlessly, not sure where he's going, not sure what he's doing. 40 days later, he finds himself on this cave, entered the cave and spent the night. Verse 9 says, Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Now, I have a way that this plays out in my head that is not in the text. Okay, I want to be real clear. This is how I see this. I feel like Elijah might have been a bit defensive right here. I feel like the tone behind this, when God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Was like, look, I've been really zealous for you. And the Israelites, they've abandoned your covenant. They've tore down your altars. They've killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now I'm out here. They're trying to kill me too. Kind of get that feeling. Now, maybe that's just because that's how I would react. Maybe he wasn't that way. But I just kind of feel that's how it would go. What's God do? Verse 11, he says, And go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Let's pause there. Once again, God is speaking to his prophet. It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. It may have been that for those 40 days after, he, after the angel of the Lord left him, after Jesus left him, it may be that he'd been praying, and it felt like it had been bouncing off the heavens as he wandered around for 40 days. Now he's holed up in a cave, and the word of the Lord comes to his prophet. This time there may be a twist. You know, God didn't tell him to go hide in a cave. That may be why he asked Elijah the simple question, what are you doing here? Even if his tone may have been different, his response does seem frustrated, discouraged, and hopeless. Kind of like we've been talking about with 1 Peter, where we're trying to honor God, and I'm trying to do the right thing, and I'm trying to represent you at work, and everybody's mad at me, and my family doesn't understand, and all of these things. God, I've done good stuff for you. Why are you letting life be like this? What are you doing here? This prophet who had stood so strong believed God's word when nobody else did had faltered. Now, God had already comforted and sustained him, and now it's time for him to give him some correction. Because see, Elijah was wrong. God hadn't abandoned him. God's plan wasn't failing, and Elijah wasn't the only one left. But the next phase of God's activity in Elijah's life wasn't going to look exactly like what Elijah had seen previously. So God's correcting his wrong ideas. How is he doing that? Well, he's demonstrating his power, but not manifesting his presence with it. Right? Because you've got this massive, strong wind that tears the rocks there on the mountain. That's, by the way, why I used that picture, because that was the best one I could find of the idea of mountains and caves and rocks. You can imagine the wind sweeping through that valley and shattering the rocks, but God's presence wasn't in that. You can imagine hiding in a cave as all of a sudden the ground begins to shake beneath you and things are falling, and you're starting to wonder. But God's presence wasn't in the earthquake. And you see as this massive fire sweeps over the mountain, God's presence wasn't in that. Elijah had seen God's presence manifested through his power there on Mount Carmel. God had sent fire on Mount Carmel as a manifestation of who he was. But here, the fire is God's power, but it doesn't have his presence. Now God's presence comes when Elijah hears a voice, a soft whisper out of the fury and the noise. The presence of God doesn't come with the power. It comes in the quiet. It comes in the stillness in a way that only Elijah would hear. We don't know exactly why God did these things this way. We do know that this event makes a turning point in his ministry. And the way that God works from him from this point forward are not nearly as outwardly visible and extravagant as they were in the first part of his ministry. But maybe Elijah was disillusioned with the fact that Jezebel was still alive and there were still people who were worshiping Baal. God hadn't wiped them off the face of the earth yet. Maybe he made the mistake that we all make from time to time where we think that God's presence and activity will always look flashy and dramatic. And we expect God to work in the big and do the big things but miss that what we really need is God's presence, His whisper, the still moments. You see, this morning that may be the gentle correction you need. You're looking for the power of God to fall from heaven to destroy this thing. You're, You're looking for God to slay the Jezebels in your life. You're looking for some kind of assurance from God that nothing bad's going to happen to you if you do this. And you may not get it. Because God can show his power in those ways without putting his presence in it. Now again, we know theologically that God is present everywhere. But there's a unique way. Those of you who have walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about those moments where you become uniquely aware of the presence of God. The Bible seems to come alive to you, or there's a comfort, there's a peace that passes all understanding like Philippians 4 talks about. So maybe you've been looking for the power of God to lift you out of depression or to calm your anxieties, and what you really need is his presence. To recognize, God, I don't need the mountains to quake. I don't need the fire. I just need you. But Sean, he feels so far away. I know he does. I know he does. Believe it or not, pastors have dark days too. You want a great read about that, by the way? Spurgeon's Lectures to My Students it talks about the minister's melancholy. Excellent treatise on the subject. But in those dark days when God feels so distant, we have to do what we said last week. Remember what we said last week? We said, feelings don't have brains. So sometimes you have to tell your feelings what to think. So in those moments, you have to say, God, you feel like you're a million miles away, but I have this promise in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, that, that because of who Jesus is and what he's done, and remember, Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age right? That's the promise that Jesus made us, that he is with us to the very end of the age. So God, I feel like you're a million miles away, like you've forgotten me, and here I am in the depth of depression, but I know that's not true. And we listen for the still small whisper of God's voice. Peter told us last week that God's hand is mighty and that he cares for you So on the dark days when depression creeps in, remember that he's with you and that he's able to accomplish his plan even when it doesn't seem like it. Because see, his presence in our dark days gives us comfort. It also gives us correction. There's one more gift that he gives us, and that's the gift of clarity. The gift of clarity. Pick up again in verse 14. The end of verse 13, you have God asking the same question that he asked before. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He says the exact same thing. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, he replied. But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, they've torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking to take my life. Same thing he said before, but I have this feeling, and again, this is me, not the text. I have this feeling that his attitude was a little different. Don't you? You shake your finger in the face of God and tell him how everything's wrong and how he's he's not doing his end of the bargain. Then all of a sudden, the mountain starts to quake underneath you. Okay. (laughs) But he's still depressed. God, I'm, I'm the only one left. I've done all of this. And I've tried really hard. And they're still worshiping Baal. And they're still trying to kill me. Then pick it up. Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael, the king over Aram. You are, now to, you are to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, son, Elisha, son of Shaphat from abel Mahola, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bound to Baal. And every mouth that's not kissed him. What? <laughs> I, I didn't say anything about anointing people, God. I didn't Did you not catch? They're trying to kill me. So, so what are you going to do with Jezebel? Well, how, how am I going to be like, how do I get to Syria and be safe? Because he's telling them to go anoint Hazael, king of Aram and Damascus. That, that's, that's all the way all the way through Israel up to Syria. You remember there's this murderous queen who wants to kill me, right? And she said she would do so by tomorrow, and it's been like 40-some-odd days since that point. God doesn't say. Now, he does say that that Jehu will kill and Hazael will kill and Elijah will kill, but he never directly addresses the issue about Jezebel. Instead, what he does is say, here's what you're supposed to do next. It's kind of like God does with Job. If you ever notice, as you go through the book of Job, never once does God tell Job why he did what he did. He never once talks to Job about the fact that there was this thing going on between God and Satan where God was demonstrating his holiness and his power as Job followed and honored him despite everything that Satan could throw at him. Nowhere does Job get that picture. He knows it now, but he sure didn't then. When God showed up, you remember what God did to Job? He said, where were you when I created the world? Did you set the edges of the seas? Have you seen where the mountain goats give birth? Do you call out the stars by name? Do you bind the cords of Orion's belt or loose the cords of the Pleiades? Do you do all these things? Is that that you? Tell me. What did he do? He pointed Job back to who he was. Here, he points Elijah to what he's calling Elijah to do next. He doesn't give him a lot of detail. Now, the one thing he does directly address is, oh, by the way, you know how you think you're the only one? Actually, there's 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. Now, arguably, there were several million people in Israel. That's not a big number, but that's more than one. Where Elijah thought he was the only one, there's 7,000. You see, here's the thing, though. The clarity that God gives us on our dark days will not always, in fact, I would almost go as far as to say, we'll never tell you everything you want to know. The clarity that God gives is not going to answer every question. He's just not going to do that. He didn't tell Elijah how he was going to get him safely back to Syria. He didn't tell him all that. But what he did show was that he was in charge, that he was keeping his word, and that he had a plan for everything that Elijah was enduring. That's the clarity that we get from God's presence. From recognizing that he's in charge and we're not. Recognizing that he's so much more powerful, but he's so much better. You think about this. Elijah had seen God in the most powerful way that almost anyone did. Elijah experienced God's presence in a way similar to what Moses experienced in Exodus 33 and 34. Elijah ends up being one of the guys who actually appears with Moses and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when you get to see Jesus in all of his glory for this brief moment. But he got his eyes off of God for just a little bit and got depressed. So when Jesus met him that day, He brought him comfort. As God guided him through that wandering period, which, by the way, you notice it didn't get better overnight. Forty days that he wallowed around in this. But then God gave him the correction he needed, which was, you're not looking at me as I really am. And God gave him clarity for what's next. In the dark days, that's what you need. You need the God who loves you so much that he would die on the cross for you, be buried, rose from the grave for you. You need that very same God to let you see his presence in a unique way. Now, guys, God doesn't speak through audible voices. He could. He's God. If he wants to, he sure can. But he doesn't usually work that way. God isn't likely going to call you to go stand on a cave somewhere out in Floyd and He's going to run the mountains in front of you. But he's given us his word as a reminder of who he is and what he's done. He gives us guys like Elijah which is with a nature just like us. He really was a guy just like us. You know, it's interesting to think about what God could have done with Elijah had he not run. Can you imagine this showdown between Elijah and Jezebel where God just strikes her dead because of how he works so mightily through the prophet? It would have been amazing to see how he could have glorified God that way. But if he had, we wouldn't have this account. We wouldn't have gotten to see this aspect of God's nature. We wouldn't have seen how we can respond this way. But it's interesting Elijah leaves us wanting more because we wish he'd stayed strong. There's another who would come later, who would face death without flinching. There's one who would obey the Father's will directly, and that's Jesus. He didn't run from those who tried to kill him, even though he was completely innocent. In fact, he leaned into it. Elijah experienced the comforting presence of God in his darkest days, and Jesus in his darkest day said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bore my sins and yours on the cross. As grateful as we are for Elijah, we're so much more grateful for the one who did it right. The one who leaned into death for me. The one who meets me in my darkest day. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes for just a minute. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what you're afraid of, what you're frustrated by. Maybe you're not in a dark day. That's great. Would God allow you to use this maybe to help a friend who is? Not in a preachy way, but to be a part of that comfort and correction and clarity that God brings in somebody else's heart? But I imagine with the state of the world as it is and with life just being life, there's probably some folks in this room who really are facing dark days. You may battle clinical depression and you're right in the thick of it. You may not be at a clinical depression, but you're so bummed out by life and so disappointed and so disillusioned that you're about there. And you'd like to just sit underneath a tree and say, God, that's enough. I'm done. Right now, I just want to pray for you. I want you just to sit there in the presence of God for just a minute. After I'm done praying, I want you just to continue with your head bowed and your eyes closed and just do business with God there where you are today. Father, I know I know that there are people who are likely listening to this who may not have ever told anybody about how dark their days get. There are probably folks in this room who have battled depression for a really long time, who've been through that cycle we talked about where they go from being super anxious to super depressed and back forth, back and forth. In those dark days, God, would you be so near to them. We thank you that you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in every affliction, the God who corrects us when we get off track, and the God who gives us clarity about what you're doing. So, Father, would you please, please, in the lives of those who are feeling those dark days today. Would you fill them with an awareness of your presence in the way that only you can? God, would you help us as we get out and leave this place? I know we're getting ready to go out in just a few minutes, but as we go, would we not leave your presence here, as it were, but to stay focused on you as a church not a church father, but somebody from years ago has said that we would practice the presence of God in those difficult conversations, in the dorm, in class, in our apartments, in work, in the doctor's office when we get the news, in the quiet moments in our home when we're laying in bed and staring at the ceiling and can't fall asleep. Would you fill us with your presence? God, if there's somebody here this morning who's not yet placed their trust in you, would you draw them to yourself to show them that you are this incredible God who died for their sins and was raised so they could have life, who comforts us, who carries us. So help us to do business with you.